0: No marketing analytics is going to give you a full answer. And we are not doing that either. Our modeling is giving you the least bad answer. You're
1: listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. Today, you'll hear an episode from our Takeover Tuesday series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go.
2: Sangram welcome to the Flip My podcast. This is Tuesday Takeover series, and we are in the fourth and the fifth, almost the final two rounds of this podcast series where my good friend, Steve Butt, he is the ABM strategist for Corey, and he has been interviewing some incredible guests. So if you haven't listened so far, go back and go back a few Tuesdays. Eric Martin from SAP talks about how to create a 300 company market to one. How do you do that? Bob Peterson from SIS Decisions, he talks about brand and demand. How do they work together? Then we have David Cherico, who's with the query, and he talked about tech stack, like really getting in the technology of it, not just strategy. And now both of our good friend, Chris Ingham, seems like to be the fourth and the fifth one. So I'm really excited to hear more about what you guys talked about so people get up to, up to speed on it. So, Steve, welcome to the show, and thank you so much again for, for doing this entire series. Well,
1: thank you, Sangram. I'm loving this, and, and this, this one's wild. Two of my favorite people, Sangram Vajray and Chris Engman, coming together. In one place, and I did a episode that turned into two episodes with Chris last year when he was uh, in the process of launching the Mega Deals book, and yeah. it was a fascinating exploration of the whole idea of these massive multi billion dollar deals and what goes on inside them from a sales perspective and a marketing perspective. And Chris and I set out to do an episode, and, and then as we approached the forty minute mark, we're like, oh, yeah, we're only. Yeah, we're not even halfway done. So it turned into a two-episode part, and the same thing happened this time. Yeah. So well, yeah. Chris and I
2: Let, said,
1: "Do an episode talking. about yeah. the role of brand in B two B, and you know where where does brand come into play in B two B and in enterprise ABM more specifically?" And like happened last time. It's turned into a two-parter because Chris is such a wealth of information and insight and experience. So Chris Engman from Proof Analytics is the guest in this two-part series on brand within sophisticated enterprise B2B and ABM.
2: Let's do it. Let's dive into it.
1: Welcome back to part two with Chris Engman, where we're talking about marketing mix modeling and how to really understand how your marketing is impacting your business. As many of you are very familiar now, and this is the fourth episode I've done with He's CRO and CMO at Proof Analytics. He's co-author of a fantastic book, an absolute must read in enterprise B2B called Mega Deals. And he's also founder, investor, leader in a variety of other businesses. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. What we're really here to talk about is to pick up where we left off after our last episode. In the last episode, we talked about how important brand is in B2B and how important a lot of aspects of your branding and your marketing that are hard to measure really are in your business and we talked about the fact that a lot of marketing measurement even pretty sophisticated multi-touch attribution struggles with long-term and delayed impact struggles with offline struggles with third-party channels and pr and all these other things that we all know impact our brand and impact our success in business And Chris tells us that marketing mix modeling gives us an opportunity to measure those impacts in ways that we haven't seen before. And what we're going to do in today's episode is dig into how that works and what sort of information that gives me as a marketing leader to make better decisions.
0: Is that a good way of kicking us off, Chris? Did I get that right? Yes. That's a great introduction. Uh, And... uh... To your point, I've been looking at the analytics space for the last 20 years. I almost became a math scientist before I deviated into uh, entrepreneurship and particularly marketing and sales. But I've been glancing at analytics anyway for the last 20 years, having seen nothing that I really believe in. I probably have too deep of a mathematical background to, to swallow to lightweight models And like you said, like um, I think, especially in the B2B space, a lot of companies are seeing multi-touch retribution as the next avenue. So not to be the party booper here, but uh, a lot of companies in the B2C space, they've gone deep down that path and are now turning back because they realize it's missing the long-term effects. It's not catching brand new PR. Uh, cookies are being deleted. Like, like you said, offline activities and multiple devices are, are too many. It has too many flaws. And a lot of companies, there's still almost our favorite case where when, the, when they've done multi-touch attribution for a while, they know that it doesn't work because there are too many flaws. So you just see, uh, even companies that think we're just 100% online, that doesn't matter because today, most of the interactions are happening on social channels. and. You can't see those interactions unless there's a click-through. And and a lot of interactions, there there is no click-through. I can like 20 of your videos, comment them and share them and everything. Nothing of that is seen in a multi-touch attribution play. So what appears to be the first touch in such a tool might be the 47th touch. So it basically, we see a lot of companies going down that path and their customer acquisition cost or the CAC is typically... Growing, despite them, well, like they think that they are in a data-driven mode, but it's just too imperfect. This is something that has been known for quite a while among the biggest marketeers in the world that you find in the B two C space, because they have been adopting marketing mix modeling for the last twenty years. Uh, If you go into any of the top five hundred marketing buyers in the world, all of them, actually, literally, all of them are using. Marketing mixed modeling. Now it has been a very consulting-heavy approach. Where I mean, Mark, for example, founded Proof. He did. He was CMO for Honeywell for several years, and he had a team of twenty PhDs in mathematics doing the marketing mixed modeling. So it has been a very expensive exercise, and it has been very hard to scale it. So the big innovation that we brought to the table is to make marketing mixed modeling automated. Hence. It can be used by the B2B space, by, by smaller B2C companies. And what was a big surprise, we actually thought that the toughest nut to crack for, for us would be the big B2C companies because they are so deep into MMM. They're actually the easiest to sell to because they know MTA doesn't work. They know that marketing mix modeling in the traditional way is too slow and very, very expensive and they can't get it to scale throughout all their countries, all their BUs, all their brands and all that. So. We have we have a very fun time at the moment, especially among the B2C brands. I mean, I like you, I have a whole my history in the B2B space. So I, I love all our B2B cases, but the, we have an even faster traction with very mature companies that have done analytics for a long, long time because they really know what they're talking about. Take us through in a
1: practical sense how this works. I think the logic of the why is obvious. Yeah. But how is a little confounding. Right. I mean, how on right. earth do you measure online and offline, things going on in PR, or social media, right. all these things, conversations sales is having, like, how on earth do you pull that all together?
0: So first of all, you need to kind of crack in your brain, like you, you need to break the notion of a customer journey. So yes, there are customer journeys, but much like Google found in their big, big analysis, they studied 5,000 people over a quarter, and none of them had the same customer journey. So customer journeys are not true. You can see it's a lens. You can you can look at them, but they're not true. So the, you need to crack that uh, notion in your head. What you're really trying to do... If you remember in school, when you did some kind of mathematics where you saw a, a curve going up and down, let's say you take a, a revenue curve, you take the timeline, and then on top of it, you're plotting your revenue curve. So it's Hopefully, having a positive trend, I guess. But then it's going up a bit, it's going down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What you're trying to do with marketing mix modeling is to find the combination of the factors, which would be what you spend the money on. So, how much are you spending per marketing tactics, and how are your volumetric KPIs looking like on a weekly or monthly basis, back two, three, four years in, in time? And what you're trying to do is you're trying to use mathematical methods to use those variables to actually synthetically create your sales curve. So if you find a way where you use the subset of all those variables, so where you spend the money, and also things like MQL, side traffic, and all that. And if you can find what mathematical formulas can recreate your sales curve, Then you've found what is driving what, over which time horizon, with which volatility, etc. Now, this is very hard to explain technically on a podcast. But that is very conceptually what you're trying to do. So you you start with the data, which is uh, typically revenue, profit. And then the second group is where you spend your money. like. Campus marketing. I pay, spend this amount per month, and and paid search, paid Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, promoted Twitter feeds. You know, Instagram email marketing, events, blogs, blah 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 blah. What you spend on video productions, etc. So basically, how you spend your money, it's basically your budget. And the third set of data is what kind of KPIs are you collecting, logging at the moment? Probably site traffic, time on site. Marketing qualified leads, some kind of conversion measurement, number of LinkedIn followers, Instagram followers, uh, etc., etc. So, so you're basically taking all of this, and you're then running multi regression modeling based on it. Which is some of you who are listening have probably done some of that in some kind of master program at the university, especially if you did some kind of MBA or a, a business degree of some sort. And it sounds a bit like a bit spooky, but it's, it's actually the same methods that I used together with a, who, a guy who's now a professor in mathematics. We actually helped the Swedish government to reduce the error on capital gain tax from 80% to 4%. We used exactly the same models. So we actually tried, we, we were working hard to find a mathematical formula that could represent the revenue coming from capital gain tax from the population. So, And we managed to do that. And we, we, there were seven different factors driving it. And we managed to bring down the error significantly. It's the same thing we do here, but we apply it on marketing and sales and PR and those kind of thing, things. In a static world, I totally get how that would work. You mm-hmm. could tweak
1: a lot of changes in one variable and how that changes the, the slope of the curve. Mm-hmm. How does that account for the fact that we're and very much not in a static world, while those things are going on, and while you're making those changes, the economy's going up or down, competitors are making moves, customer confidence is changing, all kinds of factors beyond your own marketing mix are in yeah, yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. and then even within your company you know your your top two sales guys quit and you know like how on earth it, it just sounds like it's such a incredibly multivariate environment? I can't even imagine how you could...
0: Well, I, I give you two answers to that question. So the first answer is we do bring in things like uh, the, the financial state, I mean, the, the economy uh, in your country or in, in the world, etc. Interest rates, we're sometimes bringing in oil prices. And, you know, whatever you have that's influencing your business could be uh, a, market entries from your worst competitors. But what is... The second answer to it, which is, is very, very critical, so no marketing analytics is going to give you a full answer. And we are not doing that either. Our modeling is giving you the least bad answer. So if multi-touch attribution is ca- catching 20% of everything that is affecting... I mean, we're, for, for example, adding price levels into the modeling as well. If multi-touch attribution is giving you 20% of the answer... We might be at 60%. We're not at 100%, but we're, we're completely uh, winning over the human brain. So any kind of really savvy marketing sales team sitting in a room looking at all the data, they will be like the the PhDs in economy that, that had the 80% error on the capital gain tax, and we brought it under 4%. So they will be equally wrong. And our modeling is not giving you the right answer either. But just by getting a 60%, this is just, you know, 60% just made up. could be 75, could be 79, whatever. So just by just giving you a fuller view of how marketing PR and sales are playing together to make your revenue go up or whatever, you will spend your money so much in such a smarter way. So in all cases that we interact with, almost a third of the marketing mix is being cut out. It is proven to be close to not showing any result at all. It is so insignificant that you can take the money and move it into really well-working tactics. I gave an example from a, a company where we, that we work a lot with at the moment. So they have what looked like two equally good tactics in a short-term analysis like multi-touch attribution or something like that. That was actually an MTA analysis. So they looked equally good on an ROI perspective. And just by adding the delayed effect, so the time lag, one of them came out as 50 times better. So it's as a 50 times higher ROI. That is crazy significant. So all of a sudden, you can spend way more money on that highly lucrative category. And what's interesting, which is kind of proof of the pudding, a lot of companies that are following the lightweight analysis world, they end up having a higher and higher customer position cost, meaning they're doing something wrong. But when you catch the long, the midterm and the short term term effects, you are uh, making better decisions. So, yes, we are incomplete as well. Just to be very, very clear, marketing mix modeling is incomplete, but it's the yeah. least it's the least
1: incomplete. Right. That's. Totally fair, it would nothing is gonna, is nothing of... is going to be perfect, nothing is going to be all encompassing, but you 're claiming that this is significantly better visibility into oh, yeah. what spend is having what impact on your business yeah. over what time, and that time frame is a lot longer term so I, w- I want to explore that particular piece of it, and we talked in episode one about a great creative and great advertising can really burn into people's minds and positively influence purchase decisions made months or years later. How yes. do you go about trying to measure that?
0: So uh, let, let me f- explain a few of the terms, uh, because uh, I will kind of go through what you're talking about is called ad stock. So advertising stock, it is, I would translate it, say the brand value. So, But let's come to that soon, because that is one of the most complicated pieces so first of all, marketing mix modeling is giving you uh, the three most obvious ones is ROI. But the ROI term, we call it multiplier. ROI is a larger term when you do catch the delayed effect, hence the 50 times bigger effect when adding time lag compared to when you look at the short term. So the multiplier in our analysis is always higher than in a short-term analysis because you're catching the long-term effect as well, not just the immediate effect. So when you do... uh, And this is actually to all marketeers listening. When you do an analysis that is only short-term, actually quite a few of your marketing tactics are looking not very profitable. But when you actually add the time lag, quite a few of them are super profitable. So it's all of a sudden much easier to defend in front of the rest of the management team while you're doing certain things. And since you're catching the delayed effect, you can also say that this tactic is paying off over an 18 months period. So then the rest of the team know, okay, this has a very long and delayed effect, whereas this one is immediate. Okay, depending on the financial status of your company, you might choose one or the other if I'm in a great shape, I mean we're we're looking at there's one quarter left of the year we're we're overperforming. I might want to go for long term because I'm feeding I'm seeding my results for the next year already now. Whereas if I'm in panic, I need to go for short term tactics the rest of the year to really kick ass all the way to the goal line. The other term that is being uh, used is was actually the delayed effect. So which is quantified both in terms of. Half life. So when is half of the effect come back as additional revenue? Like with caffeine, you have a half life, like with radiation from uranium, there's a half life, alcohol half life. So marketing also has a half life. And if you have a very long half life, that type of tactic has a stronger brand component. A lot of people have misunderstood the thing about brand. They think certain activities are brand and certain activities are not brand. All activities you do influence the brand, not equally much, but they have a certain component of brand in them. The third term that is worth understanding is actually volatility or standard error. So a high volatility would be, for example, events. If you run 10 events, I'm sure you've experienced this. Some events, even though you more or less do the same, One event can be absolutely amazing, whereas another one is absolutely appalling. So the volatility on events is very high, whereas the volatility on retargeting or search is really low. It's very predictable month over month what the results will be. So we quantify that as well. And then we quantify things like when does a certain tactic stop paying off? Some people call it the S-curve or the law of diminishing returns i give, I give you an easy example. So if retargeting has a great ROI for my company, and I quadruple the spend on retargeting, is it sure that we will quadruple the effect? Absolutely not. If we quadruple the volume of retargeting ads, we might even have a negative effect because it, will, it might go up a bit or in, during that period of, of increasing the spend. But then you reach the point of diminishing returns. You even go down because you annoy, you annoy your audience. So, so we're quantifying the S-curve. We're also quantifying something called the halo impact, which is uh, if you're promoting... Let's say you have 10 products. Let's say we are BMW and we promote the X5. Now, that has a spillover effect or a halo impact uh, on the X7, the X3, the X1, the 5-series, and the 3-series. We just don't know how much. So we quantify that. And, and that, is, uh, that exists definitely in the B2B space as well, where you have quite a few companies, especially the larger ones, having wide portfolios of products and services. And the last one, I mean, we, we have many more, but the, the last really pivotal one is ad stock. And now going back to your initial question, so basically, let's say, let's imagine you're looking at your budget, the Excel sheet. Uh, in the left-hand column, you have the name of each tactic. You then have per month how much you have allocated to each tactic. Now, the ad stock is quantified, so each tactic you can probably guess if you you just look at them one by one and you say high, medium to low brand effect, and you probably gut feeling wise not totally off. So. For example, spend on videos, yeah, probably medium to high brand effect. An SEM ad, very low brand effect. PR, very high brand effect, and especially over a long time. So anything with a spread out effect is kind of a brand effect. So what you do from a model perspective is that you are calculating how much each marketing tactic has a carryover effect into a following period. So this is highly complex to describe in a podcast, but, but it's really sophisticated and it really works. So if you imagine, again, a graph where you have the sales curve in the top and you have time, and then you, you create a baseline. And the baseline is the ad stock line. So if you do tactics that have a very weak branding effect, your baseline will gradually deteriorate. And that makes your customer acquisition cost more and more and more expensive. Whereas if if your baseline is gradually increasing, because in your tactical mix, you're doing things with a great branding effect, your customer acquisition cost will drop because branding is like grease on your wheels. And the wheels are the performance marketing tactics. The branding is adding the grease to that. So if if you have a lot of grease... Sorry for the vocabulary here. Your, your conversion rate will be way higher. And not just on a lead perspective, but also win, things like win rates. There's an overbelief in leads, by the way, in the B2B space. So, those are kind of the, the big terms that are being used in a marketing mix modeling world. Um, and uh, combined, they give you a phenomenal basis for not only reporting from a financial perspective to the rest of the management team enabling you to actually get way more funding to your marketing and PR. Because in the B3 space, almost always the the marketing is completely underinvested. And you also start to understand what is driving what. Um, Once you have
1: that visibility, obviously, now you start making some different decisions and you start optimizing. Are there patterns that you see emerging where certain channels or certain activities are very often poor performers. And once you have that visibility, it's a common scenario that you start dialing those things down. And of course, conversely, are there channels or activities that are probably underappreciated today? Once you have that visibility, you realize they're doing more for you than you ever realized before and you start cranking them up. Are there any
0: consistent or frequent patterns you see? Yes. Before we talk channels, I I want to share something really pivotal because I've seen... And I've seen and I still see so many B2B companies that are completely stuck in a marketing qualified lead belief system. Uh, marketing is way bigger than marketing qualified leads. And there's an underinvestment in driving your funnel and increasing the deal size of existing accounts. There's an overspend on lead generation. So that's probably 90% of all listeners have that without knowing it. And there, there's a there's a top management drive towards... We need something quantifiable and it's so easy to quantify MQL, but it's such an op- sub optimization. Then looking at tactics. Uh, so PR is almost always underfunded in the B2B space. Events almost always overfunded in the B2B space. We cut off, quite often cut event, the event budget in half or even slice 75% of it. There's such an overbelief in driving leads through events uh, and I think it's driven by the over-belief in MQL, and that is in turn driving events because it's easy to get business cards. But hey, (laughs) in general, those are not great leads. Anyway, uh, what else? So uh, if you're deep into uh, trying to do a multi-touch attribution play, you typically overspend on search. But saying that, a lot of the, the laggards in the marketing space, so typically the large industrial players, they're underspending on search. So I can't say that that is true for all. But if you've gone deep into uh, what you think is a sophisticated CAC model, you're typically overspending on search and uh, very high conversion tactics. For the CEOs or sales leaders listening, the sales force is almost always overfunded. So there are too too many uh, feet on... too, Too much feet on the ground so both at ClimbOn, where we grew from $3 to $90 million in, in, in contracting in two years, we significantly cut down on the sales force and moved that money into marketing. So we spend more money on marketing than on sales. We do the same at Proof. So we're spending more money on marketing than we do on the sales force. And we will continue to do so. And I, I had the advantage of having Mark, the founder of Proof, whispering in my ear, even in my on years that that's what you should do. So. Uh, That combined with the mega deals research was kind of dynamite. (laughs) And uh, the 3,000% growth was, uh, was based a lot on those two insights. That seems like a really logical
1: outcome of that greater visibility that absent that visibility, you spend a lot of money on things that are easy to measure and short term Results. You mentioned search. You mentioned scanning badges at events. Anything that'll drive an MQL or a demo or a meeting today. And it's a very finite measure. We got X number. We don't think we got X number. We got X number this month. And that is up Y percent over last month, pat ourselves on the back and go home. And what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that once you get this greater visibility through marketing mix modeling, you start recognizing that you're over-investing in those things and some things that are a lot harder to measure, you, you now are better able to justify the spend there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, all of a sudden, the CMO is coming into the room looking like an Im- a very sharp investment manager, and no other function can play on that level. So then, marketing is going from being actually the the worst in the room to the best to become the best in the room. All of a sudden, marketing is driving the business and not sitting in the back seat flipping brochures. Sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah, that that it's music to my ears. I mean, I've I've yeah. long advocated for a, a position very similar to what you're saying that leads and MQLs and even SQLs are poor measures and they actually incentivize yeah. the wrong behavior in a lot they of do, cases. They do. They, they, yeah, lead they do. lead to a lot of very transactional activities and transactional mindsets that destroy brand value and destroy relationship value because everything is driving to a, an immediate win. How about we do a demo on Tuesday at two o'clock kind of thing is... All that 's going on in a lot of organizations, and people are getting promoted and fired based on their ability or failure to deliver a high quantity of low quality near term yeah. outcomes and it's yeah. a hard thing when when you're the voice in the room saying, "This isn't right, yeah there's something being missed here there's something being overlooked, but you can't it's really hard to quantify that, so it sounds to me like marketing mix modeling is a potentially very valuable tool for the person who wants to advocate for something more strategic and something that goes beyond yeah, transactional more and, more, yeah, totally. monthly and more monthly realistic. yeah yeah marketing mix modeling in its traditional form, as you've explained, is heavy and time-consuming and expensive and slow. And therefore, it's out of the reach of a great many companies. But what you're offering at Proof Analytics is automated marketing mix modeling, which is, if I'm understanding correctly, takes a lot of that Human labor out of it, so therefore it's faster and it's less expensive and it's available to more organizations. But I presume we're not talking about this is not going right down to small companies. I mean, we're
0: still in the world of enterprise. uh, I take it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we will strive over the coming years to make it available for the SMB uh, category. What's really cool—it's it it actually we cut out more than ninety percent of the work, so. It really reaches uh, for big enterprises. You can scale globally on a monthly basis, and not having it done once a year for four of your main countries. So it becomes an integral part of your everyday marketing. But uh, it is not yet, uh, and not even for us, it's not yet available for the really small companies, uh, unfortunately. So we we kind of uh, the typical yearly engagement starts from. 100k, and then and that's typically not a worldwide approach. Let's say we take a handful of countries, and we also sometimes, depending on the customer, we're limited in terms of number of business units, etc. Uh, and we do it a, on a managed service basis. But then after the first year, they transition into a full size model. And for all you can eat model, I'm not going to quote that, but it's very affordable if you're a reasonably sizable company. Our all you can eat model, where the customer is doing more and more of the work, is really affordable. I mean, we're looking at a, a, some of the cases we've been looking at, we're down to a 20th of the cost that you would, would be using a consulting approach. So it's not pocket money, but it's uh, compared to, uh, so, I mean, some companies are spending a fortune on marketing mix modeling done the old school way uh, without making it scale. Because it's so valuable. I mean, if you know how to spend your go-to-market money, that's probably the biggest win uh, in any company. It's the least analyzed domain. And it's one of the biggest spending categories in any company. So by just optimizing that, you make tremendous a tremendous difference. And, and it's a high value domain. And, but to, to some of you running smaller companies, is not yet available. For the, for the small companies. We will right. come to that point. It's not tomorrow, hopefully in a year or so, uh, but we're not there yet. Now we're having a full-time serving medium-sized and large companies. And what's the practical output?
1: Am I looking at real-time dashboards? Am I getting a monthly oh, yeah. report? I mean, what, what's, well, well, what well, am I looking at if I'm a client?
0: That's a great question. So you have both the SAS platform where you can the customer can play around by themselves, create models and and see what if I increase this, how it will hit my sales, et etc, and what magnitude am my spend on retargeting on Facebook paying off, et cetera and that can be viewed through the various dashboards in the system but since we delivered as a managed service in the first period, we actually do and it's because Many of us have been in various SaaS companies, and there's a too high degree of failure, even with a great product and a great onboarding and all that in customer success work, there's still too many cases that fail. So we have decided to prove that we run a managed service full stop. That's the only entry model we offer, but it's really appreciated. So we, run, we take full responsibility for the first year. We're simultaneously allowing more and more users coming into the platform where, where they can do their own analysis. But we are taking full responsibility for a certain number of models and all of that, and we also help them to prep it for their internal monthly meetings, etc. But but you're getting the 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 two main outputs on a monthly basis is first the financial reporting on uh, so what's the expected ROI? Everything I've done during September it's seven times the money. What how much have I spent? And over what's the expected time to impact? Meaning when is half of the effect materialized? And is it the high Medium or low volatility on my total spend that month, we then break it down for tactics saying okay what's the expected return investment on my LinkedIn ads on my blah 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 on my blah 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 etc and that's the layer number one and layer number two is we give indications on what should you increase, what should you decrease, what should you consider actually taking out and we and those three are coming from the system, but we do the analysis of the analysis together with the client to contextualize it. There's a fourth outcome, which is not coming from the system, but from us as a team. Since we're involved in both big B2C and B2B cases, we see a lot. And since we've quantified a lot, we can say, well, at Quarry, I'm just taking you as an example, you should be looking at these three tactics that you're not yet using. But a, a, a quite common output and an immediate saving, where start, our ROI is typically done in the first month already, is by pointing out what tactics are actually inefficient. That's, a, that's the easiest ROI. And then on top of that, you start to spend money in a smart way. But You can, you can initiate by saving money, just cutting out waste. This is
1: fantastic. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us again. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm never entirely sure where the conversation's going to go, but it's always somewhere good. I always learn something. I hope that I, I likewise. I hope that our listeners enjoy these conversations as much as I do and and learn as much as I do from you. This has been Chris Engman. He's CRO and CMO at Proof Analytics. He's co-author of Mega Deals, and he's all-around B2B expert and a, uh, a wealth of information and insight in this fascinating world in which we travel. Chris, thanks so much for joining us again today. Thank
0: you, Steve. My pleasure.